together. Amen. The 22nd Psalm. In a sermon I've titled, An Awful Good Friday. An Awful Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Psalm 22 presents details of what our Lord Jesus experienced in his inner being on the day of his crucifixion that we would not otherwise have. This despite what we know medically about the agonies of that Roman perfected torture in the scenes documented in the inspired Gospels. That is only at least in part to the different types of literature we're dealing with. The Psalms are Hebrew poetry and deeply emotive. Intended to reveal truth via our emotions in a way other genres of literature just cannot. The gospel accounts are historical narrative. They report who did what and to whom it was done, who was there and what was said in chronological order. And the church is abundantly nourished by each. Today, I guide us through the 22nd Psalm into the depths of our Savior's gloom 
and the heights of our Savior's hope. Four observations that demonstrate what was awful, what was good, and what was awfully good about nine hours, many Fridays ago. First, Jesus is Psalm 22, made flesh and died among us. Then, Jesus was, in a qualified sense, forsaken by God. Next, Jesus, in His darkest hour, had a present experience of future joy. And fourth, in this psalm, we see Jesus fulfilling the promise God made to Abraham. When I say, for God so loved the world, most of you immediately know the chapter and verse in the greater context of John's Gospel that I'm quoting. I hardly need say any more. So too with, for all things work together for good to those who love God. And once you're in the realm of the 8th chapter of Romans, and you know full well what is going on spiritually. If I were to ask, when is that verse most often quoted? You would commonly respond, in times of difficulty, or when life does things you just don't understand. You would be right, of course, most of the time, to so reference that portion of Paul's letter in that manner. If I sing the following opening words of a famously popular song, just take those old records off the shelf, you know right away where I'm coming from. You know that's Bob Seger's old-time rock and roll, right? Many, if not all of you, that have ever been to weddings or other celebrations immediately get in touch with the same good feeling that accompanies that song in those celebrations. When that song plays, people invariably get up in droves and herd to the dance. According the opening line of a psalm had a similar impact on the ancient Hebrews, for whom the psalms were part of the worshiping community's liturgy or customary religious observance. For many years following King David's authoring this psalm, this religious song, the Jewish people recited it to express their personal sufferings and hopes in a manner that would resonate with those who shared their tradition. Therefore, when Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He echoed that tradition and expressed his sharing in their sufferings. Additionally, Jesus quoted the last line of the psalm, also from the cross, when he said, It is finished. In that, we hear the voice of the psalmist at verse 31, quote, He has done it. More to follow on that. But the attentive ear would hear this and would therefore be sympathetic to the one suffering. And for some around the cross that day, this was quite true. But verses 1 and verse 31 were said in the ninth and final hour of Jesus' life when with his final strained breaths, the Lord Jesus let us know what was happening in his soul. Jesus was more than just another example of and participant in this psalm. Jesus was Psalm 22 incarnate. Neither the suffering nor the hope of this psalm ever was realized in a person in the way it was, the Lord Jesus. Five verses from this psalm also adorn the Gospel narratives in the following order, as they appear in the Gospels. Verse 18, His garments are divided. The Lord Jesus naked, so we could be clothed. Imagine the horror of looking down and seeing your executioners gambling for your clothes. Verse 7, they wag their heads. Absolute scorn directed at Jesus. The more significant a person, the greater the insult. None could be more insulted than Jesus, for there is none greater. They challenge Him to come down from the cross if He is divine. 
Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver, for he delights in him. Leaving Jesus, as we see in verse 1, wondering whether the, the Lord delights in him. Verse 1, the Lord cries out, and I'll take that up next. And then, as I mentioned, verse 31, the work is finished, and we shall see what that work is. As to other verses not found in the Gospels, but found in this psalm, nevertheless experienced by the Lord Jesus, never was a heart melted like wax, as was Jesus' heart. His bones were quite literally visible, because scourging tore away chunks of flesh. Then another scourging blow could land on top of the blow that tore away the flesh so that the muscle could be torn away and the spine and ribs and hip bones made visible. The one who promised that whoever came to him would never thirst was completely dehydrated and dry mouth. Whatever the original meaning in the psalm of hands and feet being pierced was, for it meant something, it wasn't just a mysterious reference to something David and others knew nothing about, as if it was written merely in some prophetic trance. No, it meant something in them. But whatever it meant, Jesus took it to its fourth dimension. Forgiveness costs the one doing the forgiving. Anytime you forgive someone for an offense, it is a form of sacrifice. Because you, rather than the offender, must bear the pain of the offense. If you forgive someone for stealing, it costs you money. You have lost the money. If you forgive someone who humiliated you, you say no to the satisfaction that comes from seeing justice done to that person. It costs you. Tim Keller tweeted, The essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. Psalm 22 is God absorbing pain set to Hebrew poetry. God shows us what forgiveness costs God. It is God crucified. That is why it must be so graphic and gory. We must see what it looks like when God refuses the due satisfaction of, exact, of exacting justice on sinners. That looks like something. Jesus was in a qualified sense, forsaken by God. And I mean that we must qualify, define the limits of that forsakenness, being careful neither to overdo it nor leave it undone. We are in no danger of this, for the text of Psalm 22 and other scripture bear the weight of the task. Jesus was our sin bearer. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. Sin fractures relationship to God. It severs it to a great degree. That fracture, that severing, had to be personified. It had to be made incarnate in the Lord Jesus if He is to be the sin-bearer, the curse, the one who bore our sins in His body on the tree. Before the veil in the temple could be torn in two, announcing access to the Holy of Holies, the body of the Lord Jesus had torn, announcing the unholy of unholies, that is, human rebellion and sin. Something had to show that. So for nine hours, Jesus was thus displayed on the cross. People despising Him, gloating, gloating over Him, disgusted with Him. People described metaphorically as dogs and lions and wild bulls. By the sixth hour, when Jesus might have seen 
among the onlookers, the tear-stained cheeks and red eyes of those who so dearly loved him and wept over him, a taste of sympathy to give some soulish comfort, darkness fell for three hours, depriving him of that slightest condolence. Only then did he cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was sorely tempted in the wilderness, and near the end of his strength, angels came to his aid. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, in deepest despair and anxiety, an angel was dispatched to minister to him, so that he could make it to the cross. But there on the cross, where are the angels to help? The, for, the forsakenness Jesus felt was the total absence of his Father's love and pleasure. In all of Jesus' prayers found in the gospel, he prays. Uh, 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 prayers found in the gospel, he prays, "Father" or "Abba, Father." Here on the cross, we see Jesus' great faith to call out, "My God." But in Jesus' soul, the intimacy of fatherhood that he cherished seems to have vanished without a trace. Once as a very young child in an amusement park, I was left behind on a ride. Some ride that went round and round and round in this sort of circular pattern. And I vividly recall the feeling of total despair and fear. Suddenly, everything was wrong in the world. And around and around I went, searching desperately through tear-filled eyes for my mother's face and not seeing it. Now, that hardly compares with the sense of absence the Lord Jesus felt, but the panic was paralyzing. All of a sudden, everything was wrong with the world. Nothing was the way it was supposed to be. Where was the God who rescued Israel from its oppressors every time they cried out in the book of Judges? Where is the God of verse 4 and 5? Where is the God in you our fathers trusted? They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Where is that God? Where was the God who delivered the infant Jesus from Mary's womb and gently laid him at her breast? The alternation in the psalm between descriptions of trouble and statements about God's ways expressed the contradiction that rends the soul when the unity of faith and experience is broken, writes James Mays. When the unity of faith and experience is broken. Even so, we know that Jesus was not alone and without God on the cross. I think it's important theologically to things in my time in Christ. Things like the Trinity was broken. And things like the relationship between the Father and the Son was severed. Neither of those is true. Scripture tells us that, quote, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Beyond all else, that includes the crucifixion. God was in Christ while Christ was on the cross. We know that the Spirit was also in Christ. Quote, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There on the cross, Christ offered Himself through the eternal Spirit. Jesus, the God-forsaken man, 
and Christ, the man-forsaken God, unite on the cross. When Jesus quoted this psalm in the manner I've described, He was also revealing that He was presently aware of future joy. A joy set before Him by which He endured the cross and despised its shame. The book of Hebrews tells us there was a joy there set before Him by which He endured the cross. Verses 22 to 26, we see this where He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. All your your offspring of Jacob glorify Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. May your hearts live forever. Jesus knew that His sufferings were going to accomplish this. His sufferings were weighted with purpose. During the most intense suffering ever experienced by any human, the Lord Jesus reflected on this psalm which He must surely have committed to memory. He knew the day would come when it would be the only light in the solitary confinement of His darkness. Jesus knew that in fulfilling this psalm, no jot or tittle would be left undone, including the anticipation of future joy that the psalm celebrates. We learn from His example then what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It means to die to anything this world has to offer and rely only and entirely on God even when we do not feel His presence in the ways we always have. When the fatherhood of God is veiled, to take up our cross and follow Jesus is to invite the suffering that's saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil necessarily brings. But it is also to invite the joy that will never end. Jesus models this on the cross for us. Shepherding His people, even in His excruciating humiliation. He who bore with unbearable sorrow, who ran with a brave dare not go, who fought our undebeatable foe, who did right the unrightable wrong, who loved pure and chaste from afar, who tried when his arms were too weary, who marched into hell for the heavenly cause. One man, scorned and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable star. And that is what he did, brothers and sisters. Last, we see in the incarnate sufferer of Psalm 22, the guarantee of the Abrahamic promise. God promised to Abraham that He would make him the father of many nations. And that all nations would be blessed through him and through his offspring or his seed. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. In verses 27-31, through 31, we see that all the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All families shall worship before God. In verse 29, in Eugene Patterson's Bible paraphrase, the message reads, All the power mongers are before him, worshiping. All the poor and powerless, too, worshipping. Along with those who never got it together, worshipping. When I was in college, my grandfather was funding my college. And whether he knew it or not, funding also uh, a very great deal of sin. And so he would give me money, but he would keep a ledger on it. And he would put the date on which he gave the money whether it was money for some tuition or other money that I casually needed, him not even really knowing, or perhaps later he did know that I was 
you know, going to that account on weekends and getting money for things having nothing to do with school. And every once in a while, I would make a small payment to him, and it would just barely bring down the amount on the ledger. Well, after my grandfather died, about a month later, I got some belongings that used to be his. A great little pencil box, which I keep all my bills in now, and some other things. But also was included was the ledger. And he had written in large letters across that ledger, in the event of death of creditor, debt is forgiven. In the event of death of creditor, debt is forgiven. We say with the psalmist and those who shared in the tradition of godly suffering, he has done it. We humbly rejoice in the final words of our Savior, Captain, Brother, and Friend. It is finished. Amen. More music? More music.